Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, September 6, 2021. We're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Ero, a road-weary traveler on the road looking for places to fish or internet to access, and lately I've been a whole lot better at the former than the latter. Our guest is Ketchikan-based artist Ray Troll, and we're going to do this conversation in two parts, essentially. First, we're going to talk ratfish. They're super cool, otherworldly-looking cartilaginous fish in the order Chimeriform. And then we'd like to delve into how fish have inspired Ray's artwork over the years. So welcome, Ray, and we are excited to talk to you. Well, it's really fun to be here, and uh, got really fishy weather here today in Ketchikan. It's raining. It was 100% rain yesterday all day long, man. So it's, as I like to say, it's as close as you can get to actually living underwater. There you go. You picked a good spot. So first, ratfish, you feature them in your art a lot. You named your band after them. What about them has like drawn you to them? Well, how did it all start? Well, I came to Alaska in 1983 and uh, straight out of art school. Had my Master of Fine Arts degree in my back pocket. Came here as a fishmonger, actually, to help my sister start a little fish stand here. And I'd never really been sports fishing, you know, on my own. You know, I got really passionate about it. Started going out, just dropping the line down there and started drawing fish a lot. Going through my fish ID books. It was like, whoa, what is this one? There was just something about it. We're talking about ratfish chimeras. that looked so vastly different than all the other fish. It, it's in the cartilaginous group, as you said, you know, so it's basically in the shark group, but yet it doesn't look at all like a shark. What the hell is this thing is what I was wondering. And as I tumbled deeper, deeper into the world of fish, found out that, you know, for every fish in the sea, there's usually an expert or two that knows quite a bit about that one particular fish. There are a, a handful of people that know a lot about chimeras. It's a very small, exclusive, and very cool club, you know, the Chimera Club. And I began to reach out to different scientists and write them letters. Like, what's up with this fish? Why? I love ratfish. I think the thing about ratfish in particular, and maybe why my artistic senses and my paleo nerd senses were clicking, were that it's one of the only Paleozoic survivors in the sea, relatively unchanged. They predate the dinosaurs. You know, they go all the way back to... The Carboniferous, there are fossils from 325 million years ago that are pretty much look like a modern day ratfish. So just like a coelacanth or a lungfish, they're unchanged. And they're really from that world, like two worlds ago. So we are in the Cenozoic, there's the Mesozoic, these are these vast stretches of time. There's very few vertebrate survivors that look pretty much like, you know, they did in the Paleozoic. And there's only a handful of our backbone creatures that do that. So I think in a world, in a way, this is like a visitor from another world. I have a species named after me now because I'm such a ratfish freak. My species is called Hydrolegus trolli, and it's trolls, long-nosed chimera. There's a lot of different names for them. Chimera means an animal put together from different parts from Greek mythology, but they're also called ghost sharks or rabbit fish, like there's been many descriptions of them, but you'll see them marketed as ghost sharks, which I think is a cool name. And there is actually an international ghost shark day. It's October 30th. Yeah. So 
the day before Halloween. So they look cool, big turquoise eyes. So as an artist, they really were compelling. Their pectoral fins are very lace-like almost, diaphanous. You can kind of look through them. And the males in particular are even weirder because they've got this strange thing upon their head. The males have these big claspers. And that thing in their head is called a tenaculum. They use that to basically hold on to the female while nature takes its course. So there, I'm sorry, I could go on about ratfish for how much more time do we have? We got like, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You talked about how these fish are like from two worlds ago and speaking in geologic time. What about them has allowed them to kind of be able to stay through, stay the course, stay unchanged and still be able to be successful in, in the world of evolution? Well, one of the jokes is that if a creature reaches perfection, then there's why, why change? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. But somehow they reached their ecologic niche of perfection where really their body hasn't changed much, you know, because they're, they're kind of the ultimate maybe underachievers or something. I don't know. There's something about just getting slow and steady. And uh, that said, you know, evolution is still has the pressure on them and they, you know, species come and go. But the body plan is basically the same. They evolved a poisonous dorsal fin spine that has been pretty effective, I think, in keeping other fish less interested in them. It's slightly toxic. Like I said, it's not going to kill you. I was going to say they've got those really odd-looking seams on them. And whenever I see them, I always think of that velveteen rabbit story where the stuffed animal (laughs) kind of like comes to life because the kid loves it so much. I was looking up stuff about their name and the Greek words that make it up it's hydrologous and those words mean water and hair so i thought that was kind of cool because i was always like i see them and i'm like man they're just like they're strange with those with those scenes yeah yeah that's the one that one genus is hydrologous hydrologous which means water rabbit but i know you know that stitched together look those are the ampullae of lorenzini those stitch marks that you see all over a ratfish they look like they're sewn together but that's actually a characteristic they share with all sharks and all cartilaginous fish have the ampullae, which are the electroreceptors. So they sense electricity, just like all sharks do. Clearly, you wanted to catch one at some point, uh, but can you talk a little bit more about uh, people who do want to target these fish? Well, I think artists and naturalists maybe want to target them to, to catch them and look at them. They are edible, but I've never eaten one. They are commercially harvested in places like South Africa and down in New Zealand and in Australia. But yeah, I've never eaten one, but uh, they have been commercially harvested in the past, or at least, you know, selectively harvested, I guess, because of their oil in their livers, as many sharks have been targeted for the oil in their livers. But uh, ratfish oil is supposed to be especially very, very great for, you know, mechanical instruments and that kind of thing. I've known people who swear by, you know, ratfish oil is some of the best lubricant out there for like guns or for metal parts. And they'll have a little jar of ratfish oil over here. I did not expect coming into this episode that I would be asking a question about fishing for ratfish because I didn't Mm -hmm. know that it could be done. But uh, apparently it can. So even if they're not way down in the deep ocean and you're able to catch them off of your dock, how are you setting up your rod if you're trying to target these fish? I'd say just go to the bottom like you would for a rat, uh, for a halibut or, you know, a rockfish that they're going to be at the bottom. So drop your rig to the bottom. You can use almost anything for bait. Just crank it up a couple cranks, you know, and just have your bait down there. They're, they're not going to be a fighting fish. You'll feel, you know, they're not going <laughs> to fight you much. They'll be a little bit 
bit of a tug and bring them up. They don't suffer from barotrauma like a rockfish would. So you can crank them up and release them. But really last year, you know, especially with the pandemic, we, there's no cruise ships here in town. We had this beautiful, huge, long dock down here in Ketchikan. You know, it's like the world's biggest fishing pier now. And I was going down, especially last year, no ships at all. There were various people be down there fishing. And I would say half the time people were catching ratfish. Wow. And I've that got videos so cool. of them catching the ratfish. So I'll have to make a trip to catch can. Some trophy ratfish. They reach two feet in length, <laughs> you know, thereabouts. I would love to see one. Yeah. In real life. I've seen the art. I've seen pictures, but I did not know that they were accessible like that. I've had dead ones in jars and that's about as close as I've gotten. They never yeah. look as pretty in a jar. No. Yeah. They're, they're really beautiful in, in life. You know, uh, there's the turquoise eyes and, uh, the spots, the sort of gold inside and, so, yeah, I, I, I love them. What's your first memory of drawing a fish? Like how old do you think you were when you started kind of noticing fish? You know, I really started drawing fish more in undergraduate school in Kansas. And I started, I was fishing for catfish. I did noodle in the rivers there. So yeah, they started showing up in my art then. And then when I moved to the Northwest and moved to Seattle in 77, eventually went to WSU for my master of fine arts degree. And there were some of my professors who were doing these massive paintings of trout, like these 12 foot paintings, Galen Hansen, you should check out his art. And these oil paintings, a 12 foot painting of a trout will just like, just floored me. And I'd already been doing them. I started doing more, but and then when I came here to Alaska, to be a fishmonger with an art degree, I, I was, couldn't help but, you know, draw and paint them. So, and soon I got an audience doing, you know, that was digging my work. So. Do you have a favorite species to draw? Is it the ratfish or you got some other oh, yeah. favorites? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, yeah, I, I think the rockfish are pretty extraordinary. You know, <laughs> uh, the Sebastes genus is, is wonderful. I think I got one of your rockfish pieces of art from the American Fisheries Society conference from a few years back. I, I was oh, able yeah. to snag a couple of those. Rockfish are, are so cool. But yeah, I know being a creative type too, you know, I have songs about rockfish recompression and songs about ratfish. And we have a song about lump suckers, lump suckers of love. Because they are just, they just want to love and be loved is my theory about lump suckers. And with a name like lump sucker, what are you going to do? Do you like to, how do you, so when you're drawing a fish, are you looking at an actual fish in hand that you've caught or someone's caught or how do you, how do you get so specific with your drawings? I mean, they're very scientific actually. I mean, they're surreal, but scientific. I guess I've been described as a scientific surrealist, you know, which I, I like that. So it's dreamlike, but yet it's accurate. But I like, yeah, I like to get the fish or the creatures as, draw them as well as I can and, and and to really study them. And so, yeah, I take pictures when I go fishing. You know, if I catch a fish, I'll photograph a fish. I have lots and lots of old school, uh, you know, four by six prints, you know. I do have fish in jars, too. I've learned a lot by having fish in jars. Yeah, so I do that. And then, you know, of course, the old internet searches, look for other images and that kind of thing. But, um, yeah, I like to draw them from life as and as accurately as I can. Your artwork can be found in lots of different places. You can see it on T-shirts. You can also find it's bringing life to the otherwise kind of bleak gray cubicle walls of many a government fisheries office. 
but it's quite a task to make government offices look cool. I have some in my office. <laughs> are, are you surprised that people have really gravitated to your work so much? Or what's it been like, this kind of rise in celebrity? You say you started off as a, a fishmonger with an art degree, and now you really are a celebrity in the world of, of fisheries. Well, what does celebrity in the world of fisheries mean? <laughs> That's not exactly like... But yeah, it's cool to go to an ichthyology meeting and, or, you know, I go, I started going to scientific meetings, you know, and it's kind of weird to let an artist into a scientific meeting. And it's kind of cool coming in as a complete outsider to that culture. But I began to find that people would come to my talk where I was just like randomly showing pictures of, you know, my art. Uh, but it's a feedback loop, you know, as an artist or some a creative type person, or even as a scientist, you know, as you get your work out there, you get an audience, you garner an audience, and you start interacting with that audience. And like I said, I'm inspired by the science. And I like to think actually that my artists kind of help inspire some science back, you know, I mean, that inspires the scientists. I think a lot of people know about kind of the life cycle of salmon now, thanks to your Spawn Till You Die shirts and, <laughs> and posters. That seems like a popular one. Well, yeah, I, I, well, my job is to, you know, I looked at it as, is to try to create a compelling image that maybe draws you in and maybe makes you want to ask that question. Well, what is that, what does that phrase or what does that joke mean? So yeah. Life cycle of salmon spawn to you die. I, I really am a big fan of how you work humor into uh, a lot of your artwork and seeing, I, I think that's a great way to connect with people. And, and this is getting into a little bit of also how I think that your work has a little bit more appeal beyond just the, fisheries biologists and the people who go to these these big meetings. I was talking to a buddy. I was out fishing with a friend of mine just this past week, and I was kind of bragging about how I was going to get to interview the, you this week. And that night, we went to dinner in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and our waiter was wearing the fish and chips shirt. And <laughs> Good. It's just... It, My evil plan is working. <laughs> Global saturation, domination, one t-shirt at a time. <laughs> <laughs> saw your exhibit at the Anchorage Museum, the paleo exhibit, and that was really cool because it's just really like large prints and like you really get a sense for maybe how that world or there's, you know, a couple worlds ago were. Do you have any other plans to do exhibits like that or other topics? Yeah, I've done several exhibits over the years. One on the Amazon actually was one that traveled around the planet for a while, the Amazon Voyage exhibit. And then cruising the fossil freeway exhibit. And this is the fossil coastline exhibit. I did one on the buzzsaw shark. Oh, yeah, I saw that. I saw that at the Seward Aquarium, I Please think. Please tell us. And guess who, who the closest living relative of the buzzsaw shark is? <laughs> the ratfish. So ratfish. Yeah. So, yeah. Once upon a time, ratfish had their heyday. The ghost sharks ruled the seas. And they really were. And that was back in the late Permian there was one group within the uh, ghost shark lineage that grew to a really big ass size. If I can use that word here in the podcast, uh, reaching 20, maybe 30 feet in length. But what's strange is that in their lower jaw, just like all sharks, they were producing teeth throughout their life. But this was a, this was a chondrichthyes, a cartilaginous fish that was retaining its teeth never shed their teeth, but in the lower jaw, it was, it kept them. And these 
teeth. It's the only animal to cheat the tooth fairy, as I like to say. <laughs> and it retained them in this bizarre whirl that it was using to basically slice prey apart. And these are like serrated sharp teeth, not like a modern day ratfish with the blunt chompers, the rabbit-like teeth. How many hours in your day are you putting pen to paper, drawing these things? Typically, I'm out in the studio uh, 40 hours a week. You know, I show up, I like to show up since I'm self-employed, you know, like to have structure, like to be out there about nine o'clock, work till noon, take a little break, wander around town, go down to the gallery. Uh, my wife runs our gallery, the Soho Coho, and we have a web store, trollart.com. Then I'm usually coming in and doing Photoshop stuff. My studio is totally analog. I like to leave it analog, so I'm drawing and painting out there. What's your favorite medium to, to use? Pen and ink, probably. I'm really more comfortable drawing, you know, than painting. Painting, I have to think, you know, like, what does red and red and orange, yeah, yeah. Red and, and yellow make orange, that's right, <laughs> blue and <laughs> If I could grab a pencil, there yeah. it is, you know, so color pencils and or pastels. But I still mix stuff. But yeah, pen and ink with digital colors, a lot of what I'm doing these days. How is your studio space set up? How do you like to work when you're creating these artworks? It's a good question. It depends upon the media. The studio is across the street. Not across the street. It's across the driveway. It's about an 800-square-foot space. And I do have a massive wall that if I'm doing a mural thing, I could stretch a canvas on. But then I've got another section that's basically a drafting table. With the, I can angle the table, bring it up to me, do some really tight pen and ink stuff. And usually I'll pencil stuff out and then I'll ink it and then I'll scan it here in the house and do digital coloring. Or I work with a, a digital colorist by the name of Grace Freeman, who does a lot of my really more elaborate digital coloring. So... It's cool to collaborate. I was mentioning that I like the little one panel things, but I also am a big fan of these larger pieces that work in all these different fish from various ecosystems. Well, usually it's one ecosystem kind of per piece. When you're making something like that, where you have all these different pieces sort of fitting together, do you plan that out at the beginning and then go to draw it? Or do you just kind of draw free form and add things in where they go? That's, that's a good question too. I'd like to maybe have a rough pencil sketch of one kind of thinking, but then what's exciting for me, especially when I do those big pieces and now you're making me, I want to do a big piece again. One of the last big murals I did was for the university of Washington. And that was about seven by 15 feet, eight by 15 feet. I had a rough sketch, but what was cool is I just kind of painted the, the sort of water column behind it. And then every day I would just go out and add another fish. So I would start it and, make these moves every day sort of like a chess game in a way you know so if i put a fish here i'm going to balance fish over there and then if i put a ratfish here maybe the male ratfish would be over here they'd be straight on but then i put one over here so you start i start stacking them in behind each other and just let it evolve like a dance you know so i like i like that kind of evolutionary approach where the art starts just speaking to you and and it can you know those those pieces can take a year to do so every day I'm living with this thing. I go out, what's the next move? Do you have a favorite kind of ecosystem that you inspire to draw or like a certain class of fish that you haven't drawn yet? Katrina, if there was, there's one mural that I'd maybe like to do before I kick the bucket since I'm so golden <laughs> old now. <laughs> um, funny how that happens. But I've always wanted to do the abyss at a large scale so that I could really literally almost step, you know, up to it. And I've always wanted to do it and have 
it glow in the dark when you flip the lights off, you know, all the glowing. But, uh, you know, the deep sea anglerfish, the ceratioids, those are mind-blowing fish. <laughs> so you've been talking a lot about how your work is being inspired by the natural world, but how are you inspired by other artists out there? So I'm... I am a, a chimera, if you will, a ratfish, you know, made up of many different parts. But yeah, people oftentimes say R. Crumb. And yeah, I loved uh, R. Crumb. I still love R. Crumb. He's not, he hasn't left us yet. But you know, I really, as a kid, I grew up on Mad Magazine and Alfred E. Newman and all that kind of good stuff. So Mad Magazine was a big influence on me. Monty Python, you know, that surreal humor. But I am a student of art history, too. So uh, I go back to Hieronymus Bosch and Peter Bruegel very much. Albrecht Durer was one of the first artists ever, like, paint dirt, you know, or grass, to do a whole canvas on grass. You know, I love more ancient art. So uh, there's a lot of that kind of Egyptian kind of profiles and things. So there's that stuff. And I think that I'm influenced by Northwest Coast indigenous art, you know, being a white guy in this culture that's lived here for, you know, 10,000, 13,000, maybe more years down this coast, I'm uh, influenced by it. I've, and many uh, Native artist friends, Clinkett, Haida, Simshan friends, and their place in the natural world and how they coexisted with this beautiful landscape and all these creatures here. And I'm lucky enough to be here in this part of the world. Do you have any messages you'd like to give our listeners about fish or maybe folks that are aspiring to be artists, maybe crossing into that fisheries realm a little bit? Well, I think scientific illustration is is a necessary, it's a, it's a cool thing. It's a wonderful thing. I think we still need those graphs and charts. And I think we still we need people to make compelling images just so that we have a visually rich time here on, our, on the planet while you're here. And I think it's important that science is conveyed to the general public in almost any way it works, in any way you can get the message across, be it music, be it painting, be it a t-shirt, be it a podcast. Scientists need help because, <laughs> you know, in, in conveying that because it's, it can be kind of a, an exclusive club where they're speaking a dense language that others don't understand at all. And you guys are making important insights, but you maybe don't have that entertainer gene. So I think science communication is really, really important. And I think deep science work by the true science nerds that drill way down into it. You got to keep the science going, but I think getting the word out to the public is really important in whatever way you can do it. Ray, it's been great having you today. We really appreciate your time and this has been a fascinating conversation. And we hope folks get out there and learn about ratfish. Go look them up online. They're a beautiful, strange creature and enjoy all the fish. Thank you, Ray. Well, thanks, Guy. Thanks, Katrina. It's been fun. And yeah, get out there and love those ratfish. Respect the ratfish. They will teach you many things. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Race Car, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore, production management by Gabriella Montaguin, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, 
We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community. Individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.